Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Jeremiah 29:11. After you've turned there, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the ham of Excuse me. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take their wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Keep your Bibles open there to Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. That is our sermon text uh, this morning. There was an article in the Muncie Star Press, July 31st of this year, and the headline, actually it was an editorial, the, uh, the headline of the editorial said, Poverty numbers grim. And the editorial went on to explain that children under 18 years of age in Delaware County in the year 2007 consisted of 21.9% of the children in this county, almost a full quarter. Four years later, 2011, that number had risen to 26.1%. Again, this isn't just poverty rates across the board. This is children in poverty in Delaware County, 2011, 26%. Well, this uh, editorial was talking about this, how significant of an issue this is, and it asked the question. It said, what can be done about this? And it went on to offer some ideas. It said, well, our leaders need to talk about this more. We need to get this into the national conversation, it said. It said we need to make some policy changes, so a number of different policy changes were mentioned about how this problem could be corrected. But there was one thing that was conspicuously missing in this editorial. There was no mention of how the Church of Jesus Christ might step up and help. No call upon the church to get involved. No appeal to the faith community to do anything about this. Now, why might that be? I mean, there could be a number of reasons. It could just be an oversight 
Uh, maybe they intended to and just didn't get around to including that in the editorial. It could be just out of ignorance. Maybe the person writing the editorial doesn't know what the church does, what the church is about. It could be some kind of anti-Christian bias. I suppose that's a possibility as well. But I wonder if it's because the writer of the editorial thinks that Christians don't really care, that we just aren't that concerned about the poverty rate in our county. Do we care? Do you care? Should we care? And as Christians, as a local church, should we be concerned about this? Should we be seeking a way to help in this situation? Do we, as a local church, have a responsibility to the community in which God has placed us? Or do we just have a responsibility to one another as members of the church? Do we have a community to the people who live around this church? That's what we're talking about here this morning. We're going through a sermon series on the core values of this church at New Life. We have five core values. We started with worship. We value worship here. So two Sundays ago, we talked about what we do on Sunday mornings, why we do it. Last week, we talked about belonging. That's another of our core values. We value community and the building of relationships. You'll hear more about life groups before this service is over. But we also value compassion. We place a high premium on showing compassion to our community And the reason why is because all of us as Christians are the recipients of generous compassion from our God. We have all been poor in spirit, and yet through the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has made us rich. And in response to that, then, we seek to show a similar compassion to those in our community who are poor in one way or another, not just spiritually but materially as well. So we're looking at this passage here in Jeremiah 29 to see what it says about, God's, uh, about the responsibility of God's people to their community. Now, I have covered this text before. Almost two years ago, we looked at this. So for some of you, it might be review. But I just think this passage is so absolutely foundational to this particular core value. And it's a passage that's so little known. Uh, many of you maybe have never read it or seen it. And if you have, it's probably been a while. Um, so that's why we're going to spend some time here in Jeremiah 29. Uh, looking to see what God says to us about our place in the community. But let's pray first. Our God, Lord, we look to you, God. We need your Holy Spirit. We want to know you better. We want to know what you've done for us in Jesus, and we want to know how we can live for you. So by your Spirit, join now with the preaching of your word. Give us faith. Give us hope. Instruct us and prepare us, Lord, to be your people in this world as you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three things here. Um, The setting, the cultural setting that surrounds this passage. Then we'll look at the call that God gives to his people in this particular community. And then we'll look at some of the responses to that. So let's look at the setting first of all. Uh, The setting here of Jeremiah 29. This is Jeremiah. He's one of the major prophets in the Bible. And uh, he is sometimes called the weeping prophet because he speaks so much about judgment first 28 chapters of this book, Jeremiah is calling the people of God, Judah in particular, to repentance over and over again. He tells Judah, you guys better repent, you better turn from your sin, you better come back to God or God's going to judge you. The people don't listen. 
They resist over and over again, and so finally the day comes in 597 B.C. where just what Jeremiah said would happen did happen. And it happened at the hands of the Babylonians under the leadership of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. So what happened is these Babylonians, they swept into Jerusalem, as God predicted. They sacked the city. They burned it. They pillaged it. They ransacked the temple. You can go to 2 Chronicles 36 and you can read about this. It's one of the saddest chapters in the Bible as the judgment of God is meted out here uh, on God's people. And the Babylonians killed a lot of God's people. Some they captured and brought them back to Babylon with them. And those are what are called the exiles. So some of God's people were exiled out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And so that's the setting here that we find in Jeremiah 29. Now some of you might know something about the city of Babylon. There is no more notorious city in the Bible than Babylon. This is important to understand about the setting. Babylon is a city that is a symbol of evil in the Bible. It is linked with rebellious opposition to God's rule. In Babylon, we see immorality, selfishness, pride, violence. In fact, I'm going to read to you some descriptions of the city of Babylon from the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18. Listen to these descriptions. Here's the kind of place Babylon is, a dwelling place of demons, the mother of prostitutes and earthly abominations. Babylon, a city drunk with the blood of martyrs. This is not Wheaton, Illinois, friends. This is not Colorado Springs, Colorado. This is Las Vegas times 10. This is a wicked, immoral, rebellious place, Babylon. Do you get the setting? Am I making the point? That's the place where God sent his people to live. That's what's happening here in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is getting ready to send a letter to the exiles. Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem. He knows the exiles are in Babylon, and so he's going to send a letter to them. So that's what it says in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem, where Jeremiah still was, to the surviving elders, the ones who haven't been killed already by the Babylonians, of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the peoples whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That, that's the setting that we get here, a very hostile relationship between God's people and the culture in which God has put them. And when we see this, it's, I think, appropriate for us to ask, what is the setting of our particular cultural situation? A lot of you think, yeah, Babylon sounds pretty close to where we are in this country. A lot of you think we're basically living in Babylon here in the United States, or if not now, that we're headed in that direction. Um, well, let's think about this just a little bit. As we consider the setting of God's people in Babylon, how would we describe the setting of the church in the culture today? Tim Keller has written about this, and I think he's come up with a very helpful analogy by using the four seasons to describe the different relationships the church has had with its surrounding culture. 
in the world today and throughout history. If we look at each of the four seasons, it gives us a description of the way it's been. So, for instance, um, for some churches, it's winter. For some churches in some parts of the world, and for churches in various periods of time in the past, it's been winter. That is, there's been a very hostile relationship between the people of God and the cultural setting in which the church has been. I think this describes Babylon. It's winter for God's people in Babylon here in Jeremiah 29. For Christians in Muslim countries where there's a lot of persecution and the church has to hide underground, it's winter there for them. And it's been winter at various times throughout history for a number, uh, a number of period of times for the church. Uh, but then there's also the season called spring. Now, in the spring, the church is embattled, still dealing with some resistance and persecution, but the church is growing. And I think this describes the way the church in China is right now. The church isn't just free to do whatever it wishes. A lot of the church is underground, but the church is growing by leaps and bounds in China. It's like the sun is starting to come out and the flowers are blooming and things are looking good. And it's this way in a lot of countries of of Africa as well. Some churches have enjoyed having a relationship to their culture that would be described as summer. Uh, That's where there's a very high regard for the church. The church is popular. The church is in a place of prominence. People have high respect for the church. People want to be part of the church, whether they're Christians or not. And that was the situation in the United States, probably back in the 1950s and 60s, where church attendance was about 60%. We could probably use this to describe the period under which the church was led by Constantine back in uh, the early centuries of the church. So on occasion, the church has been in a very favorable position. But you know what comes after summer? It's fall. And in the fall, the church is being increasingly marginalized. It's no longer in a position of prominence. It's not being outright persecuted, but it's being pushed to the sides. It doesn't have the reputation that it once had. And that, I believe, is a situation that describes our setting today in the United States as the church. It's getting chilly out. The leaves are starting to fall, and we're getting our coats on, and we're preparing for winter. We're in the fall right now. I don't think we're in the winter like Jeremiah 29, but but we're in the fall. And, And the reason I'm explaining this to you is because I think this has a lot to do with how we look at our community. Because I think the fact that we are in this place, this setting where we're being increasingly marginalized at the church, it means this, that if we're going to reach the world, we as the church need to prepare need to be prepared to go to the world rather than waiting for the world to come to us. Because it just doesn't work that way anymore. When when it's summer, people are coming to the church freely. They're interested. They uh, They find it appealing. They find the church a respectful thing. Just to look good among their friends, they'll go to church. That's the way it is in the summer. We don't have that luxury anymore. Things are changing, it's getting chillier, and if we want to reach the world, we've got to be prepared to go to it. Just like Jesus said, he's praying to the Father in John 17, he says, Father, you've sent me into the world. Jesus didn't wait for the world to come to him. Jesus went to the world, and in response to that, Jesus says, and so now I'm telling my disciples that they need to go into the world. And that's his call upon you and me and the church. 
we got to be ready to go. we got to be ready to enter, to engage, to insert ourselves into the culture. And so Keller sums it up this way, and I think this is a very important thing for us to, to think about as the church. He says, a missional church, that's a church that's trying to get involved in its community, will be more deeply and practically committed to deeds of compassion and social justice than traditional fundamentalist churches and more deeply and practically committed to evangelism and conversion than traditional liberal churches. We'll talk about evangelism later. That's another one of our core values. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But then Keller says this, only this kind of church has any chance in the non-Christian West. Only this kind of church that is committed to saying, you know what, we're not just going to sit here and wait for people to come. We're going to go out and reach the world by serving our community in sacrificial acts of mercy with the gospel on our lips. That's what Keller is saying is, is our only chance, and I agree with him. So that's the setting that we're in, and so it, it, it calls us to think about our relation to culture in a particular way. Well, let's go on to the call. What does God call, specifically, the church to do? Remember, there's this letter here. Jeremiah is sending a letter from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon. This is a letter in which God is going to call his people to do something. Now, what might you think God would say to his people when they're in a place like Babylon? I mean, wouldn't you expect that maybe what God would say is, um, get out as soon as you can. Uh, flee that place, or uh, hide. Maybe you can't leave, but you should find a place to hide. You should build a big fortress around your church and make sure you hide very carefully so no one sees you. Or at least separate yourself. Make sure that you don't have any contact with the people in your community, those evil people, because they might stain you with sin and drag you down. So stay away from the people in your community. Play it safe. Or maybe revolt. You need to judge the community and start a revolution against it. I mean, we might think that God would call his people to do any of these things, but, but he doesn't, does he? he? He calls his people to do something very different. And we're going to think of this in, in three, there's three parts of this call. The first is this. God calls his people to have a presence in this place. Verses 5 and 6. What does he say? Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. You know, I'm guessing that these exiles, as they got to Babylon, they were probably thinking, you know what, this is temporary, we're not going to be here long, I wouldn't even unpack Let's just leave our suitcases here, you know, like when you go to a hotel and you just leave the suitcase open, you're just digging stuff out of your suitcase because you know you're going to pack it all up and go home in a few days. That's probably what the exiles were thinking. And God comes and says, no, friends, you need to make yourself at home because you're not going anywhere. Unpack, get your clothes out, hang them in the closet, get all your little humbles and things and put them on the shelves and hang up the pictures on the wall because I want you to establish a presence in this place. And he goes on, and he describes how this is going to be. First of all, he says, build houses. Build houses. Don't just, don't rent. <laughs> you know, build a place. How many college students come 
to Muncie to go to Ball State and decide to build a house. <laughs> yeah, I'm building. I should have my house done by the start of the semester. It should work out pretty well. <laughs> no, you rent. Why do you rent? Because you're probably not going to be here for very long. You're going to be here for a temporary amount of time. You build when you know you're going to stay. And so God tells his people, build, establish a presence. He tells them to plant gardens, he says in verse uh, 5. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, On the screen here I have a picture of uh, the first tomato that came out of Mary's and my garden this summer. Our very first garden that we've ever planted, and this is the very first tomato. And that is a good-looking tomato, isn't it? And we were obedient to the scriptures. We ate the produce. We, we ate this tomato. And we were so thrilled with our garden, we're going to expand it. We're going to make it bigger, and so next summer it's, it's going to be larger. Friends, you generally don't plant gardens like this unless you think you're going to hang around for a while, unless you're ready to establish a presence So here, this command to the people of God to plant a garden is his way of saying, settle in to this place. He also commands them to start families, have uh, merry wives, have sons and daughters. What a wonderful affirmation of the ordinary this is. You know, a lot of people get called to go to seminary. I sense that call from the Holy Spirit. Some people feel called to go to Africa and be a missionary. And you know what? Others are called to just get married and have families and settle down and live a nice, routine, ordinary life. And there is nothing sub-spiritual about that at all. What God is saying is, you families who are just getting up in the morning and feeding your kids and getting them to school and setting a godly example, raising children, going through all the hard work that that entails year after year after year. That's what God's calling his people to do right here in the middle of Babylon, the most wicked city in the history of the world. God wants his people to establish a place. I think this is what he's saying. This is what God wants his people to do. Find a place, find a community and settle in it, and connect to it, and get to know it, and devote yourself to it. And don't consider yourself just constantly transient. Find a place, and as much as you're able to do, develop roots there and stay. So that's one of God's call here to, to uh, his people. The other call here is a call to peace. This is in verse 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. That's what the ESV says. The NIV says, seek the peace. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. What God is saying is, seek the shalom of the city. Shalom is a Hebrew word which means prosperity. It means harmony. It means delight. It means flourishing. And look what he's saying here. He's not saying, seek shalom in the city. He's saying, seek the shalom of the city. That's different. Don't just find a place where you can have your own little group of peace-loving people, but cause prosperity, work to cause prosperity to flourish in the community to which God has sent you. And remember, friends, what are we talking about here? We're talking about Babylon. God wants his people to seek prosperity of this wicked city. Now, now how can we do this? I mean, there's a number of different ways. I know we have a lot of students here this morning in this service, so 
some of this might not apply because I know a lot of you live in dormitories, fraternities, sororities, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I would say here's a good way to start to seek shalom. That is get out of your house and take a walk in your neighborhood. Walk around the block and get to know some people. Get to meet some people. Start a neighborhood association. Mary and I just got involved in the Luddingwood Neighborhood Association that's been going for four or five months. We're meeting our neighbors. We're starting a crime watch group. Uh, it's been a very rewarding experience. Uh, those are easy kind of beginning small ways to start, but if you want to get really serious, you could do something like what Keith Miller is doing. Keith is Cammy Miller's father. Cammy's a member here at New Life. Keith attends Westminster. Keith's a retired doctor. He goes downtown Muncie, finds beat-up houses, buys them at a reduced rate, and he's very handy. He fixes up these houses, fixes up these houses, and then sells them to low-income people at an affordable rate. That's how the man is spending his retirement. He's not on the beach in Florida. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love Florida. But he is devoting a good portion of his retirement time to helping the poor, to seeking the shalom of the community. That's what God is commanding his people to do. And then he also commands them to pray for the community. Look at uh, the second half of verse 7. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, he says. It doesn't say pray against the city. It doesn't say pray that God would judge the city. It doesn't even say that, God, that, that they should pray that God would get rid of all the, the wickedness. It says pray on its behalf. Pray that prosperity would happen. Pray for the city. Friends, is that a part of your regular prayers? Do you pray for your community? You can pray for the mayor of a community. You can pray for the schools, the public schools. You can pray for race relations in the community. Pray for thriving businesses. Pray for the homeless. Pray for the incarcerated. Make that a matter of your prayers because as you pray for those things, your heart will follow. Your heart will develop a softness to people in those situations. And we try to do that here at New Life on a regular basis on Sunday mornings as a church. Pray for your community. Well, let me make a clarification here as I've said all this. Because for some of you, you might think, wait a minute, I thought that Christianity was about receiving Jesus and going to heaven. I thought, that's what it, I thought that was pretty much it. You know, I believe in Jesus, and now I know my soul will go to heaven when I die. Isn't that pretty much it? <laughs> uh, that's a big part of it, and that's a really wonderful part of it, but that's, that's not all of it. Our primary task as a church, it is true, the primary task of the church of Jesus Christ, the primary call of God upon us is to declare that gospel, to proclaim Jesus, to tell people that Jesus Christ has been sent into the world and he has died a sacrificial death. He has atoned for sins and he has resurrected from the dead. Those who trust in him and look to him and believe in him can know that their sins are forgiven and that eternal life is theirs and that they have been reconciled to their creator forever. And that's our primary call is to declare that message and to make disciples of you who come to this church. But friends, the gospel is more comprehensive than just getting your soul into heaven. It's bigger than that. And I want to show you uh, a video uh, that details this pretty well. So if we could start that, and I want to encourage you to watch very carefully because this guy moves pretty fast. But this kind of captures the more comprehensive nature of the gospel. Tremendous gathering represents the whole of the 
purposes are made apparent. There's justice and righteousness. There's hope for the poor, for the oppressed. And under the kingdom of God, mercy and forgiveness take precedence over bitterness and resentment. When people previously deemed to be far from God are brought into his family, adopted as his sons and daughters. When the fullness of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is not merely expressed as a way for people to escape from the evil world when they die, rather, the good news of God's kingdom is about the announcement of God's eternity moving into the present world and carrying on in the life to come. The people who belong to Jesus join in his worldwide restoration project. And the called out ones, the church, are committed to advancing this good news of God's kingdom into the world. Not as a means of helping people avoid the world, but rather to see God's kingdom life being made real here and now. The whole church with the power of the whole gospel for the whole world. Amen. That's 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 the gospel. Here here is where we look into Revelation and you can see where everything is headed. Here's John. He's looking, he's seeing this revelation of what's going to happen when Jesus returns again. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Our ultimate place is not that our souls come out of our body and we go up to live in the clouds for eternity. When Jesus comes again, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, down here. This is our eternal state as Christians on a glorified new earth prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, that's our Lord Jesus Christ on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things Jesus has come not just to save souls, but to restore the whole cosmos. So friends, if you're wondering, how do I know God? How do I respond to this? The, the first thing, you don't, you don't get to know God. You don't get reconciled to God by saying, I'm going to go out and help the poor. That's not going to save you. If you don't know God... What you need to do is repent of your sins and receive Jesus as your Savior. Just give up on all of your attempts and lean on Him. He's done enough for you. His life, death, and resurrection are fully sufficient to save you. But once you place faith in that Jesus, out of, out of grateful response to what He's done, you turn your compassionate heart now outward and join with God in this worldwide restoration project. That's what we're doing here at the church. We're not just here because we don't have anything else to do on Sunday mornings. We're, we're seeking through the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to change the world. So let's see how people have responded to this. Different responses. Throughout history, Christians have responded to this call of seeking the prosperity and the shalom of the world and have done wonderful things. In the culture, we hear so often that Christianity is bad for the world. That's baloney. In the area of education, do you know in 1932 in the United States, 92% of all universities and colleges in this nation were started by Christian denominations? 
92%. And I'm not talking Christian colleges. I'm talking about Harvard, Yale, and Princeton among them. Started by Christians. How about with health care? The ancient Greeks, they built temples, they built statues, but you know one thing the ancient Greeks never built? A hospital. They never built a hospital. The Romans were a little better. They had a hospital, but it was only for their own soldiers. It wasn't until St. Basil came along, a Christian bishop in 369 A.D., that, that we got our first hospital for the general population. It was a Christian who did that. About with the issue of slavery. I mean, let's admit, Christians have been on the wrong side of that debate, unfortunately and sadly, on many occasions. But in the 1830s, when there was this abolitionist movement in the United States, the abolitionists were those who were seeking to overturn slavery. In the abolitionist movement in the United States, a full two-thirds of those who were members of that group were Christian pastors. A guy named Elijah Lovejoy, the first abolitionist martyr. He was printing <coughs> abolitionist materials, was ordered to stop, wouldn't, was killed in Alton, Illinois. Charles Torrey, the father of the Underground Railroad, through his efforts, about 100,000 slaves were given freedom as they were transported from the south to the north. Both of these men, Christian pastors. I would recommend to you a book. There's a book called How Christianity Changed the World. Alvin Schmidt is the author. And this guy goes through example after example in the areas of science and art and music and women's rights and economics and sanctity of life issues showing how the church of Jesus Christ has gathered together to seek shalom in every one of these areas. So what do we do as a church? How do we respond to this as a local Congregation. I mean, relatively speaking, we're, we're pretty small. And I know this can seem kind of overwhelming. I mean, what are you saying? We need to run down and build a bunch of orphanages in Muncie and, you know, give up our jobs and run these places? I mean, what, what do we do? We're busy people, right? We're pursuing degrees. We're raising families. We're going to work. You know, we've got to take this a little bit at a time. We can start small. But I, I just want to ask this question, friends, the same one I asked at the beginning. If New Life closed its doors tomorrow, would anybody notice in this community? And would anybody care? Is Yorktown and Muncie better because New Life is here or not? And if not, what are we doing? Here's some options, some things to consider that we offer here at New Life. Reach Yorktown. Marianne has already described this. You'll be hearing more about how you can contribute to this ministry as we seek to reach the hungry and the needy in our community. We also have a breadbasket ministry that Barb Smith has been involved in leading, feeding the poor in downtown Muncie on Saturday mornings. We have an Elmcroft ministry that reaches out to the elderly at Elmcroft Assisted Living Center um, on Morrison Road. That's monthly, meets monthly. Uh, we have a Kids Hope Ministry where we look for volunteers, mentors to go and make friends with children in our local schools. Um, we have a number of employees of the Muncie Mission. Muncie Mission is not a ministry of new life, but we have a lot of employees, including Ray and Paula Rains, who run the Muncie Mission, who attend church here, and uh, they're always looking for volunteers to help reach uh, the homeless in our community. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities, and... I know you've got to plan carefully. I would just ask you to do this. 
just, just pray about this, would you? Just pray and ask, how is God asking you as an individual and us as a church to seek the shalom of our community? Ask him that in prayer. Because as we're about to sing here, there are greater things yet to come, friends, when Jesus comes again and brings the new Jerusalem out of heaven to find its permanent residence here. But until then, there are greater things still for us to do as a church and in this city.